This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio. I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So, I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn, pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children. And do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Episode 9, Chapters 16 and 17. Chapter 16. Maxine trailed behind Mr. Humphreys. She was fascinated. His squat, bow-legged waddle was pretty much exactly how she'd always thought he would walk. Maybe that was why, or at least one of the reasons why, she found herself so comfortable in the company of a fictional talking animal who absolutely could not actually be here in the real world. Or maybe it was that he was the most familiar thing she could possibly have found in this, the least familiar place she had ever been. Well, she'd only ever been one other place in her entire life, so maybe that was an overstatement. As they walked along, Mr. Humphreys chatted amiably, tossing out random observations that she seemed to be having a hard time following. Those flowers there will likely remind you of the cannibal flowers that Selina and I encountered on the planet Zegnata, the ones that ate poor Mr. Ekity. Very similar in both color and behavior. Which reminds me, keep your hands close. She did remember the cannibal flowers of Zegnata. And she had really liked Mr. Ekity. She was sad when he was eaten, no matter how mucusy he might have been and she remembered hoping right up to the last page that there would be some clever twist ending that would reveal that he wasn't gone after all. But that had never come to pass. Mr. Eckety was dead, and he had stayed dead. He was the first character in the series to meet such a fate. This was in Book 4, The Planets That Wander, and it had felt like such a betrayal at the time. She remembered going into her mother's room that night and begging her to tell her that he came back in the next book and that B.A. White wouldn't leave him dead and that all of this was just a big mistake or a dirty trick. She had felt so betrayed that it had taken her a full three months to start book five. Before that one was over, Maxine's family was gone. 
and the demise of Mr. Eckety and all the feelings she'd had about that were instantly eclipsed. Or maybe, maybe it had been good for her to go through that small loss before the big loss came. Was she better off in some way? Because, wait, what did he mean by similar in behavior? But by then, Mr. Humphreys was on to something else. Many people will tell you that the wheel is far more preferable to the more oblong shapes, like an ellipse, or perhaps something a little more eggy in construction. And to them, I say, sure, if all you care about is a smooth ride. But if you're looking for something invigorating, Something to give you a little oomph. Well then. It was weird how she was finding it so hard to concentrate. Her brain just kept drifting beyond the moment. It was like trying to fence in spilled maple syrup by drawing a circle around it with a pencil. Pancakes would be amazing right now. At any rate, the impossibility of her companion was something that she was having a hard time keeping front and center in her mind, even though it seemed like it was very important. It just kind of slid away as soon as it came to the surface. Maxine was 15 and knew that fantasy characters and fantasy books were not real. When you are very young, that line is so much less clear and so much less important. You know it on a certain level. You know you are reading a story and that a person somewhere wrote that story, but you also know how real things feel and that feelings seem just as important and just as powerful as facts. She remembered lying in her bunk and reading the first Selena Simon book and having her mother call to her from the doorway of her room. It had felt like she was calling from across a great distance, the sort of distance that would have been utterly impossible within the confines of the Contiki, and that returning from the very true world she was inhabiting with Selina and Mr. Humphreys took enormous effort, effort that she was loath to put forth. By 15, the line between fantasy and fiction was a much thicker, much darker, much more immutable thing. But Maxine was still close enough to that earlier age to remember the emotional pull of believing, and how in those childish days that seemed to matter at least as much as anything else in the world. Probably more. Sometimes you just want to aim right at a black hole and say, I'm not taking any guff from you today, Mr. Hole. And now here she was, traipsing through the forest with Mr. Humphreys, and once again, Maxine found herself unsure of the fixed nature of that thick, dark line. Being exactly here was all she could have wanted not so very long ago. It still was. She had just lost the ability to ignore the impossibility of that desire. Of all the losses she'd had in her life, only that of her family could bring her more deep comfort should it be restored. But that was one fantasy she had put away forever. Now, once again, what she could believe seemed as important as what she thought she knew. 
They'd been walking along the stream bed for quite some time when they came upon a patch of large rocks that seemed to have tumbled from a short cliff face above. It formed a barrier that would have been easily surmountable for Maxine, but as she and Mr. Humphreys drew nearer to it, Maxine realized that the badger was much too short, especially in the leg department, to scramble up those stones. She wondered if she should lend a hand. She knew from Book 3, The Planets of Smoke and Sea, that Mr. Humphreys found it undignified and insulting to be carried, even by his closest companions. And while she had certainly known him for all the most formative and important years of her life, she kept having to remind herself that they had actually only just met maybe an hour ago. Or ten minutes ago. Yesterday? He was actually a much better host than the name Rosorius Kildrover would at first imply. But it turned out the Kildrovers were known far and wide for their hospitality. Time had gotten slippery on her. The important thing was that this relationship was both so vital that she didn't want to screw it up, but also so new to her that she didn't really know for certain what would constitute screwing it up. Would it be more rude to grab him under his stubby little arms and hoist him up onto the rocks, or to stand there and watch him struggle when she could see, the closer they got, that there was no way he would be able to manage it? Not with any dignity. And she knew from all of the books that dignity was very, very important to Mr. Humphreys. So much so that she found herself reluctant to just ask which he would prefer, for fear that he might take the question itself as a bit too personal. Maxine had read somewhere, probably on the Omninet, the phrase, never meet your heroes. She had long since forgotten the context, but the phrase itself had stuck with her because it had struck her as so odd. Who wouldn't want to meet their heroes? They are, after all, your heroes. But maybe this is what they'd meant. It's weird to really know somebody you don't really know and then to really meet them. So I said, that, sir, is far too much money for a planet like this one, what with all of the sulfur. You'll simply have to do better. Just as they got to the rocks, Maxine caught just a little bit of movement out of the corner of her eye. She turned and looked and found that something was looking at her. There were two round eyeballs atop a little slimy, fleshy bronze mound sticking out of the water in the deepest part of the stream. The water was clear enough that she could see, though rippling and distorted, that the fleshy mound above the surface was attached to an even larger mound under it. It seemed to be suctioned to the bottom of the stream. The eyeballs rotated around and seemed to give Maxine their full attention, which made her feel very conspicuous indeed. Before, the mound swallowed the eyes right back into itself, and the whole thing disappeared under the burbling water with a barely audible little bloop. Hello and goodbye, thought Maxine. When she turned back, Mr. Humphreys was standing atop the rocks and staring at her somewhat impatiently. How had he gotten up there? Miss Maxine, I have come a very long way and gone through very much effort 
to make it possible for us to speak to one another. And I assume you would have questions for me. And we do have quite a journey ahead of us still. Perhaps we could kill some of the time by making conversation as we walked. This was all said with an air of wanting someone to know what a terrible traveling companion they were being without putting yourself or them in the mutually uncomfortable position of coming right out and saying what a terrible traveling companion they were being. Maxine just said, Okay. Excellent. Shall we then? Mr. Humphreys made a gesture toward the far side of the rocky obstacle and the continuing stream bank beyond. Maxine started to hoist herself up onto the rocks after him. Okay, uh, first question. If you're real, does that mean the eagle men of Proximus V are real too? Mr. Humphreys sighed. Chapter 17 Sumner awoke to sunlight and pain and something hovering over him. There were thin shadows, listing shadows, playing over his eyelids. What was that? He sat up, and for a moment he was utterly disoriented. Sumner had never woken up in a field of tall grass before. He'd never woken up in anything but a bed on a ship before. He blinked around at the strange environment he found himself in. There was a light breeze, and the field around him was gently undulating. He looked over his shoulder, and there, looming like fate in the distance, was the Contiki. He hauled himself up, running a silent diagnostic of all of his bones and joints as he did so. There were some stiff spots, but so far as he could tell, no real damage had been done. Otherwise, he felt okay, itchy, but okay. He had a memory of coming off the ship with his head screaming and every muscle, every instinct, just howling for him to go back. That had kept going to the point where he was crawling, the only thoughts in his head, the only things he could hold on to being Maxine and forward. He had dragged himself some distance and then, obviously, he'd lost consciousness. He looked down at his shirt, did a bit of a self-check. He hadn't thrown up on himself or soiled himself, it seemed. Actually, he felt, paradoxically, pretty good. One time, there'd been this glitch in his comm system in his quarters. It had started letting off this uh, high-pitched feedback whine from every panel. It was deafening and inescapable, and four hours had passed before Finley could get there to look at it, and another two hours before he could find the problem and fix it. When he was finally done, the release of tension from no longer being trapped in the room with the constant racket had made the ensuing silence feel like a physically pleasurable thing in and of itself. That was what this was like. He felt normal, and after an unknown number of days being disoriented, losing time, feeling like his body was battling his every choice, and then the sort of wall of pain and confusion that had been thrown at him as he tried to leave the ship, the absence of all of that 
feeling simply clear-headed felt like being brand spanking new. It was also suspicious. Why had it stopped? How had it stopped? He didn't know much about biology, but he knew something about having your brain chemistry messed with, if just from the number of intoxicated people he'd had to wrangle over the years. And so far as he knew, that wasn't something you just shook off, especially not in a matter of minutes. Minutes? Actually, come to think of it, he had no idea where he was in time. He checked his pockets, found them empty, and then started looking around for his device. The grasses swayed in the gentle breeze, shifting and rippling in the sunlight. There wasn't a cloud in the sky over the valley. He took a deep breath and blinked. His path from the Contiki was clear and had apparently been somewhat violent, from the trampled, broken, and ripped-up stalks that formed a jagged rut back toward the ship. He followed that back for a bit, and there, in his wake, was a little black square of his device laying face down and tumbled over grass. He walked over, picked it up, and dusted it off. Everything seemed to be in working order. He called up the satellite feed of the nanny tracker the dock had showed him. There was Maxine, a blinking dot on a topographical map. Her progress was slow to the point of being imperceptible from the current vantage point. As he zoomed closer, her speed seemed to pick up some. She was by a stream, somewhere, somewhere off to the southwest. On some level, he kicked himself for not picking up sooner that Maxine was somewhere foreign and almost certainly dangerous and deadly all by herself. But then, he had always given her her space and she had always taken it. He did not know if this was more a reflection of his personality or hers. And he didn't know if it worked, and he didn't know if it was what he was supposed to do. He just knew that she had a lot on her plate from a very early age, and that sometimes too much help can feel like just another burden. He had tried, in his persistent and steady way, to make sure she knew that he was there, and that she could call on him anytime she needed to. And there were occasions when she had. On his best days, he took those moments as proof that he was doing it right, and that she knew what she needed to know. Other times, he would wander over interactions they had had, small things that she had said, and wonder if those were invites to dig deeper and that he had totally missed it. There was one morning where their interaction had been a total of three sentences. He was eating a piece of toast as he waited for the coffee to dispense. She had wandered in in her customary pajama bottoms and a t-shirt with a cartoon character on it, the name of which he could almost remember. She grabbed a bowl of cereal, and he turned to her as he screwed the lid onto his travel mug. Any big plans today? She shrugged and blinked eyes that were still half filled with sleep. Hmm. Saskia and Joey were going to the game center. I think they were inviting me to join. They talked about it in front of me anyway. He nodded at this. Well, all right. Let me know if you're going to be home for supper, and I'll see if I can do the same. 
She'd made eye contact and given him a half-smile, and he figured they had a plan. Then he had headed out to do his rounds. It took 20 minutes for the phrasing of what she'd said to worry its way to the surface. I think they were inviting me. They talked about it in front of me. Was there a problem with Saskia and Joey? Also, who was Joey? And was Saskia the one he thought was Saskia? Was she trying to say, ask me about my friends and why I don't ever bring any around or ever really talk about any of them if they exist until just this moment? He'd spent the entire day trying to figure out if he had handled a three-sentence exchange correctly, if he should have asked if he'd handled it correctly, and if that was a call or a text or a wait until they saw each other later that night kind of thing. Nothing else in Sumner's life could make him feel this way. He was not a man who lingered on self-doubt, not before Maxine had come along anyway. When he did see her that night, her mood had totally changed, and she had seemed to have totally forgotten about Saskia and Joey. At any rate, there was no time for worrying about his paternal shortcomings now. He needed to get after her. He oriented himself toward her general direction and started putting one foot in front of the other. He'd hiked a bit, getting nearer to the woodline in the western ridge, when he thought he caught movement out of the corner of his eye. He stopped. Well, there was a lot of movement in tall grass, he was just finding out, but it just seemed to be wind. He turned back to his original trajectory, but then, just as he was turning away, there was something discordant in the swaying of the blades, not wind movement. If you had pressed Sumner on how he could tell the difference, he probably would not have been able to articulate it. But as it happened again, this time with a little rustling accompaniment, he knew he was right. He tracked the sound and the incongruous displacement as it circled around behind him until he was fully turned back toward the furrow his own feet had made through the field. The telltale stir worked its way closer and closer. Finally, plopping out onto the trampled stalks of grass came what seemed to Sumner to be a little yellow furry ball. Sumner had inherited from his father an heirloom who'd gotten it from his father who'd been given it by his grandfather back on earth, and it was called a baseball. Still a popular game back home from what Sumner understood. This little ball of fur seemed only a little bigger than his baseball. Then it kind of uncurled itself, and Sumner realized that it had been rolled up in a way, perhaps as a response to suddenly tumbling out into the open. It came about and stared up at him. It had a kind of snub snout under giant round black eyes and an enormous pair of tapering ears kind of shaped like the spade in a deck of cards. The creature set its big liquid eyes on Sumner and cocked its head like it was considering him. Sumner was not much of a judge of cute but he supposed this had to be it. He had meant to brush up on some of the satellite images of the local animal life. 
He knew that some of the creatures had already been given names and classifications, but he had his hands full with living things on the Contiki most days and had just never really gotten around to digging into it all. He bet they'd already given this little guy a name, something to fit it in with other similar animals from Earth, maybe rabbits or mice. Then there was another one. It appeared on the trail behind the first. This one was a somewhat different color, more of a pale gray, but clearly the same kind of animal. Then a third and a fourth. Each of them, upon appearing from the grass, would turn their attention to the large intruder and fix him in an unblinking stare. Then Sumner caught more movement in the grass off to his left, and then to his right. Then, when he looked back, the ones on the trail seemed to have crept closer. Sumner started to back up. They started to edge forward. More began to appear, and now the motion in the grass stopped circling around him and started to head straight at him. Then there was something on his ankle. Sumner looked down to see one of the little rodents clutching his pants leg and looking up at him. There was a moment where they just stared at each other. The creature's eyes were huge and watery and curious. Its little mouth opened just a pip, just enough for a little pair of buck teeth to pop out as it wrinkled its stubby snout inquisitively. Then, as it and Sumner looked one another in the eye, seeming to commune for just a brief second, it opened its mouth into a full grin, revealing behind those big cartoonish incisors row upon row of tiny, needly fangs. Sumner saw them right before he felt them. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.